Okay, well, let's um, shift gears here. Um, please take your Bible and turn to Job chapter 4. He said, wait, wait, I thought we were in Job chapter 40. Uh, we are, but we're going to go back to Job 4. And um, I want to remind you of uh, something that happened very early on in the book that we need to have uh, really fresh in our mind as we come to, um, come to this section today. Look at Job chapter 4. Uh, this is that um, that first section where the friends begin to address Job. Job has um, sort of cried out in his misery and his depression in the end of chapter 3. And Eliphaz, uh, friend number 1, steps up to respond to him in uh, chapter 4. But um, we've talked a lot about the questions that Job asks. You remember that, that the book of Job asks some really, really good questions. And uh, we've seen that some of those questions uh, have been answered. A lot of them have not. And even those that have been answered have been answered in a way maybe different than we would have thought. Um, God is more interested in teaching us who he is and what he is like rather than answering all of our why questions. And uh, that's been one of the, to, to me, one of the profound things that we've learned together here. But I want to take you back to, to Job chapter 4. And I want to show you, uh, just in a couple of verses here, one of the questions that's been raised, and, and if, you've been, if you've been tracking with the book of Job, um, the, the author, and obviously God who is in, in inspiring this whole book, um, is, is slowly showing us the answer to this very, very important question. And it's going to culminate in our time uh, in chapter 40 today. So that's why we're going to do this here. Look at Job chapter 4, uh, verse 17. One of the best questions the book asks. Eliphaz asks Job, Can mankind be just before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Isn't that a good question? Is it possible to stand before a holy God? And the implication is with acceptance. Is it possible that sinful people can somehow stand in a right relationship with a holy and perfect God? Uh, flip down to chapter 9, verse 2, and we'll see a very similar question. This time Job asks the question, responding again to one of his friends. Job chapter 9, start at verse 1. Then Job answered and said, In truth, I know that this is so. But how can a man be in the right before God? There it is again. How can a sinful person stand in the presence of a holy God? How can he be right? How can he be just? And as the book unfolds, we begin to start to see what happens with that question. Okay, And, and let me just kind of show you. And we'll illustrate it here on the board here, but I want to kind of take you through a few verses and, and demonstrate how this question is addressed in the book. How can a man be just before God? How can a man be right before God? We see at the beginning of the book, Job's faith and trust and his hope is in what? The beginning of the book, the narrator, first thing the narrator tells us in chapter one is Job is a, he's a righteous man. 
which means we know biblically that doesn't mean he's a good guy. What that means is his trust, his confidence, his faith is firmly fixed in his God. And as a result of that, there is character, there is maturity, there is integrity in his ways because of his faith. We understand that in a, a robust theology of the Bible. And then, and then we get to these sections where it's, well, how can a man be right before God? How can a man stand before God? How can he be just before God? And then those two sort of things, Job is a righteous man, his faith is in God, the question that lingers, how can a man be right before God, those, those two questions begin to come together in Job's suffering. Because as Job suffers, as he endures day after day of affliction, as he wrestles with the questions, as no answers come, as the friends give poor advice that is pushing him away from God instead of toward God, something begins to happen. His trust and his hope and his faith begin to slide from God in a different direction. Do you remember, have you noticed this? No, let me show you what I mean. Look back at chapter 6, verse 10. Chapter 6, verse 10. As, again, Job uh, responds to one of his friends who's saying, obviously there's some sin in your life, Job. You need to repent. Job begins to show us where his heart really is. Look at chapter 6, verse 10. But it is still my consolation, and I rejoice in unsparing pain that I have not denied the words of the Holy One. Okay. Now, is it good to not deny the words of the Holy One? Absolutely. But what's going on? It's very, very subtle because we're just in chapter 6. It's very subtle. What's going on is his faith, his trust, his hope is beginning to slide from God to how he's living, to what type of man he is, to, to what sort of response he's having in the midst of these circumstances. And again, it, it's good that he's not denied the Holy One. That's a very good thing. But we see here there's a little bit of movement, and uh, we see that he moves a little bit more as we flip through the book. Look at chapter 9, verse 20. Now, this is the part, we just read the question, chapter 9, verse 2, how can a man be right before God, Right? Well, Job starts to answer that question in Job chapter 9, verse 20. Though I am righteous, my mouth will condemn me. Though I am guiltless, he will declare me guilty. Now, who's he talking about there? He's talking about God. He's saying, how can a man be right before God? I'm righteous. I have no guilt. But God seems to think that I do have some guilt. Even though I'm guiltless, he's going to declare me guilty. And we see again, that causes him to turn inward even more to where he's, he's grabbing onto his integrity. He's grabbing onto his righteousness and his life and how he's lived. And we begin to see his faith slide over to himself. Look at chapter 10, verse 7. Chapter 10, verse 7. We see it even more here. He says to God in chapter 10, verse 7, According to your knowledge, I am indeed not guilty, yet there is no deliverance from your hand. So, so then he goes a step further. And he says, God, you know I'm innocent. You know I'm righteous. 
but you're, but you're not delivering me. You're, you're declaring me to be guilty instead. So now, so watch the progression. His faith was in God. It begins to turn to self. And as a result of that, as he turns away from God to faith in self, now he starts to do what toward God? What is he starting to do? He's starting to blame God. He's starting to accuse him. Okay. Do you see that? We're going somewhere, so you've got to track with me, okay? It gets even more extreme. Look at chapter 13, verse 15. Chapter 13, verse 15. Okay. Now, now he's moved to a place where he is, his faith is now in himself. He's thinking about that. He's trusting there. And now he's thinking about what's going to deliver me. What's going to save me from this predicament? Look at chapter 13, verse 15. It's one of the most quoted books, or the quoted verses in the whole book. But usually the way we quote it is only quoting half a verse. You guys know how dangerous it is to only quote half a verse? It can get you into real trouble. In fact, I think we should just ditch verse memorization altogether. We should memorize paragraphs. That's, more, that's safer, isn't it, David, right? Context. Verse 15, though he slay me, I will have hope in him. Okay, Now stop right there. Usually when we quote half the verse and you hear that, what, what we're saying is, I'm going to hope in God, I'm going to trust in God, I'm going to rely on him, even if he kills me. We say, wow, that's, that's, big, that's good faith. Right? That's huge. Look at the next part of the verse, though. Nevertheless, I will argue, literally, I will rebuke, my ways before him. So, what's he saying there? Is his hope firmly in him and he's accepting what God is doing in his life? He's confident of that? No, he's saying, even if God kills me, I'm still holding fast that I'm innocent. That's what he's saying. And not only that, look at the next verse. This also will be my salvation. Okay? So what he's saying is, even if God kills me, I'm going to die knowing that I am still right. I am still innocent. I am still guiltless before him. And that confidence will be his salvation. So what's he hoping in? What's he trusting in? Say it. Yeah, himself. Yes. Yeah. I would be, you know, not yeah. trusting in himself. Right. Yeah, there may be some there may be some variation in the pronoun here. Um but I think it is um I think the NASB uh, carries the idea correctly there. I can go back and look at it if you want, but um I remember whenever we studied this I think we addressed that. But yeah, that would be obviously a different way to take it there. Um, okay, so we see that him sliding there. L- look at this. Look at verse uh, chapter 23, verse 3. And we'll continue on here. Twenty-three, verse 3. 
So he's confident of his innocence. He's confident of his righteousness. His salvation is in God seeing that and God affirming that. So what does he say in chapter 23, verse 3? Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat, that I might uh, present my case before him. So his hope is in, he's, he's innocent, he's guiltless, he hasn't done anything wrong, he's a righteous man. God's not agreeing with him, so now his hope becomes his opportunity to plead his case before God, in, in court, so to speak. We see that. Look at verse, uh, look at where he goes with this. Verse, uh, same chapter, 23, verse 10. But he knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Now, stop right there. That's another verse we like to quote, right? And we think, well, that's First Peter, right? God's going to try us. He's going to refine us like gold, and we're going to mature through the trial, and we're going to come out even better. But that's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is, when God is done bringing in this suffering, I'm going to come forth as gold, meaning I'm, it's, going to, it's going to be shown that I was guiltless the whole time. It's going to be shown that through this trial, I'm innocent, You say, well, how do you know that? Look at the next verse. My foot has held fast to his path. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. See, there there it is again. He's defending himself. Yeah, we, we see a lot of those same themes in the book of Psalms. Absolutely. In fact, I don't know if, and we're not going to have time to do this in a message, but um, there is so there are so many uh, common themes between the book of Job and both the book of Psalms and the Proverbs. And maybe that's part of why, at least in our Bibles, those books are brought together under what we call the wisdom literature because there's so many common themes uh, that go there. Yeah, Rich. Yeah, although I don't think that's unique to counseling ministry. That's uh, you look in the mirror in the morning and you got to start there, right? Uh, but yeah, absolutely, and I, and I think we all live there, don't we? Um, it's very easy, um, whether there's a challenge or whether it's just you know sort of real life, normal life. Um, to, uh, we all are prone to justify ourselves, and and that and that's why where we're going is very important. So, okay, look at uh, twenty-three. Uh, I'm sorry, twenty-seven, verse six. Twenty-seven, verse six. Okay, as he's going on, he's innocent, he's righteous, there's no guilt in him, God's not seeing it like that, God is persecuting him unjustly, his salvation is in himself, in his innocence, and his hope is that he might be able to stand before God, plead his case, and God will say, oh, Job, you're right, and I'm wrong. Chapter 27, verse 6, I hold fast my righteousness, and I will not let it go. My heart does not reproach any. Of my days, there it is again. He's he's innocent. He is holding fast to his righteousness. You know, when we do that, we miss what God's trying to show us. And the last section, which uh, you're you're familiar with, is chapter thirty-one, which is his final plea. And we're not going to read the whole thing here, but. Chapter 31, you'll remember, is Job giving proof after proof after proof after proof after proof after proof of his innocence. And he does it in the negative. He says, um, he says things like this. 
Uh, if I have walked in falsehood, verse 5, and my foot has hastened after deceit, then let him weigh me with accurate scales and let God know my integrity. Um, if my heart has been enticed by a woman, verse 9, uh, verse 13, if I have despised the claim of my male and female slaves, uh, verse 16, if I have kept the poor from their desire, uh, verse 19, if I have seen anyone perishing for lack of clothing, um, verse 21, if I have lifted up my hand against the orphan. Verse 24, if I have put my confidence in gold. Um, verse 29, if I have rejoiced at the extinction of my enemy. He just gives all these things. If I've done this, then I wouldn't be innocent. If I've done this, then I wouldn't be innocent. If I've done this, I wouldn't be a righteous man. And he gives all these things, but he says, but I, didn't, I don't do any of those things. You, you can almost hear him in a courtroom setting showing God, but God, I didn't do this. I don't do this. I don't do this. And his faith is firmly fixed in himself and his own righteousness. So this godly man, this, this man who was righteous than anyone else in the ancient day, according to chapter 1, in the midst of the suffering and affliction his heart has moved from a faith in God to a faith in self. So much so, his faith in himself is so ironclad, he makes this conclusion in chapter 40. Look at, let's go back to chapter 40 now to where we were. Verse 8. Actually, let's start chapter 40, verse 2. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. What's God saying to Job? Job, you have, you have so exalted yourself and attempted to justify yourself in your own righteousness that you are contending and reproving the God of the universe. You see that? And God lays it down in verse 8. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? That's the bottom line. Job is condemning God in order to maintain his own justification and his own righteousness in his own eyes. In other words, Job concludes that God must be wrong to affirm that he is right. Now, again, where is his hope and trust? Where, where is his confidence? Where is his hope? Where is it? It's in himself. It's in his righteousness. Now, that's not a good place to be. God is going to continue his discussion. Now, I, now all that is kind of background to see this, okay? Okay. Look at, let's pick it up in chapter 40, verse 8. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? This starts round two between God and Job. Actually, it's really just God. Or do you have an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like His? Can you adorn yourself with eminence and dignity and clothe yourself with honor and majesty? Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and make him low. 
Look on everyone who is proud and humble him and tread down the wicked where they stand and hide them in the dust together and bind them in the hidden place. Now, what is all of that? What's he saying there? Yeah, he's saying, if you're God, can you, can you do these things? He's giving examples of things that only God does. And you can imagine when the creature says to the Creator, you're wrong, I've got a problem with you, I want to take you to court so I can show that you're wrong. I mean, he's, he's way out of line, isn't he? And notice the grace of God to bring him back. He brings him back. But he says, yeah, all these things, all these things, can you do them? Now listen to God's conclusion in verse 14. All, all that back, remember the question, can a man be in the right before God? Can a man be just before God? That's the question, okay? Here's the culmination. As God clearly makes the point that Job is not God, that he cannot do all these things, he cannot do what only God can do, God says, if you can, verse 14, then I also will confess to you that your own right hand can save you. Okay, did you see that? What's he saying there? I know it's New Year's Day. I know we all stayed up too late last night. We've got to think, though. This is, this is important. Yes, David. That's right. Do you see that? This, this is the conclusion of the matter here. If you really can do all these things that God can do, then it makes sense that your trust would be in yourself, right? It makes sense that you would trust in your own righteousness. It makes sense that, that you could be your own deliverer. But David's right. Clearly, clearly the answer to God's question, all these things, is no, I don't. I don't do any of those things. So if we're not even remotely close to who God is and what He can do, if we can't do any of these things that He's mentioned here, why on earth would we put our faith in ourselves? Do you see that? And in a sense, in a sense, with that one statement, God is answering the question way, way back in the beginning in chapter 4. How can a man be in the right before God? He can't. Only God can make him right. Only God can do that. There, there's, uh, we read it in the psalm, put not your trust in princes, in mortal man. Do you remember in that psalm what we read? Why do you not put your faith in people? Why do you not put your faith in yourself? Why, why don't you do those things? The psalmist says, because when they die, that's it. That's the end. Now, when we're thinking clearly, we go, of course. Why would we ever put my faith in anything else? But what do we do every day? What do we do every day? We start off, my faith is in God. Trust Him, love Him. And then it slides, doesn't it? And we justify ourselves. We get defensive. We argue. We don't like what God does in our life. And we see, we see a heart 
that begins to grip onto our own righteousness. That's what's going on here. And I think that's that's somewhat of a conclusion or answer to all those questions along the way about how a man can be right before God. God is is shouting to Job, you can't be righteous, you can't trust in yourself, you can't save yourself because you're not God. Kind of sounds like the gospel, doesn't it? It is the gospel. God says, if all those things are true, then I also will confess to you that your own right hand can save you. But obviously, you can't because those things aren't true. Only God can justify. Only God is righteous. Only God to sa- can save. And that means the only, <laughs> the only thing that makes any sense at all is to trust Him, not ourselves. Now, with that in mind, God's going to make his point by giving two examples, okay? And these are, I'll, I'll grant to you, I, I have a PowerPoint here, don't I? I'm just going away here. How about some blanks, huh? Does it work, Dave? Do we have the receiver stick in? All right, well, we'll get that in a minute. Let's look at the two very interesting examples here. Um, Look at chapter 40, verse 15. Behold now behemoth. What does your Bible say there? Behold now, what, what does your Bible say? Does it all say behemoth? Anybody have a Bible that says something different? Hippopotamus. What, what version do you have? New living, okay, all right. And then look at chapter 41, verse 1. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? Anybody have anything other than Leviathan there? The NLT's probably got something different. What does your say there, Ruby? 41-1? Crocodile, okay. Everybody else says Leviathan? Okay. We could digress to translation theory and practice here, couldn't we, David? But we'll, we'll save that for another day. Okay. Uh, what's God's main, here's his main point. We said it a minute ago. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? And then the point we just made a minute ago, uh, verse 14, if Job is all that God is, then he is able to save himself. But obviously, he isn't. Okay. Now, um, look, ooh, that was cool. All right. Um, two final examples. Behemoth and Leviathan. And, and this is one of those things where you... Okay, the, the, the game of the morning is going to be why on earth are these two examples given here? Because they fit into what God is talking about, okay? But I'll tell you right now, typically when people talk about these two examples, it, it, it wanders off into sort of a creationism study, okay? And that's good. love creationism. But let's remember, we want to, what we're trying to answer is, why are these two examples coming here and now in the discussion God's having with Job, okay? So here, here's the two examples, behemoth and Leviathan. I'm just going to read the text, okay? I'm just going to read the text, and then we'll kind of reflect on it and work through it together. 
Verse 15, Behold now, behemoth, which I made as well as you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold now, his strength is in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He bends his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze and his limbs are like bars of iron. He is the first of the ways of God. Let his maker bring near his sword. Surely the mountains bring him food and all the beasts of the field play there. Under the lotus plants he lies down in the uh, covert of the reeds and the marsh. The lotus plants cover him with shade. The willows of the brook surround him. If a river rages, he is not alarmed. He is confident, though the Jordan rushes to his mouth. Can anyone capture him when he is on watch? With barbs, can anyone pierce his nose? Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many supplications to you or will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him for a servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird or will you bind him for your maidens? Will the traders bargain over him? Will they divide him among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with and with fishing spears? Lay your hand on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold your <laughs> Behold your expectation is false. Will you be laid low even at the sight of him? No one is so fierce that he dares to arouse him. Who then is he that can stand before me? Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole of heaven is mine. I will not keep silent concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his orderly frame. Who can strip off his outer armor? Who can come within his double mail? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth there is terror. His strong scales are his pride, shut up as with a tight seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezes flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils smoke goes forth as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals and a flame goes forth from his mouth. In his neck lodges strength and dismays leaps before him. The folds of his flesh are joined together, firm on him and immovable. His heart is as hard as the stone, even as hard as a lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty fear, because of the crashing, they are bewildered. The sword that reaches him cannot avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He regards iron as straw, bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones are turned into stubble for him. Clubs are regarded as stubble. He laughs at the rattling of the javelin. His underparts are like shop potsherds. He spreads out like a threshing... Threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the depths boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a jar of ointment. Behind him he makes a wake to shine. One would think the deep to be gray-haired, for nothing on earth is like him, one made without fear. He looks on everything that is high, and he is king over all the sons of pride.
What on earth are these creatures? What did you guys learn in Sunday school? We talked about the Loch Ness Monster. That's right. Uh, Only at Grace Bible Church. Um, Well, traditionally, as um, Ruby's translation specified there, these creatures have been identified with the hippopotamus and the crocodile, respectively. And there's a whole bunch of background here, and it's really interesting how most scholars today came to understand those two creatures as being the ones that are identified here. Um, now, can, can, we, can we pull the car over for a minute and just, just talk about basic Bible study for a moment? Okay. Um, because as I was reading commentaries, I thought, you know, we're forgetting the things that we learned in Bible College 101 sometimes when we come to texts like this. Okay. Uh, j- just... Can I just give you two things that we really, really need to be committed to when we come to a text like this? The first is inspiration. What does inspiration mean? It's God-breathed. This is God's Word. This is, this is a biblically inspired, or sorry, a God-inspired text. These are God's words. And in fact, in the context, who's speaking them? God is. Okay. So we want to come to this text firmly believing in inspiration. And let me tell you why. A lot of commentaries start talking about myths at this point. Talk about myths and mythology. And there's an old Egyptian myth where there's a, there's a creature in their mythology, an Egyptian mythology that fits one of the descriptions here in some regard. Um, but for those of us that believe in the inspiration of Scripture, we don't, we don't start talking about myths just because we, we can't relate to some of the things here when we go to the zoo. Okay, we, we don't go there. The other thing we need to hold very firmly in check when we come to a text like this is hermeneutics. What's hermeneutics? Yeah, it's the science and art of biblical interpretation, really. How, 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 do, we, how do we study and, and, and exegete to bring out the meaning of the text? How do we do that? Um, and, and the reason this is important, and I don't want to bore you with this, but um, when you hear in this church and in conservative uh, pastors and teachers and commentaries, we talk about the, the literal, historical, grammatical hermeneutic, Right? Literal means we take the Bible in its plain sense, right? We, we take the Bible at, at face value. We, we don't look for hidden meanings. We don't look for uh, figurative language when it's not there. We take the Bible in its normal plain sense, okay? That's what literal means. Historical means we understand it as a historical document. We're trying to interpret it in the context in which it was originally written, okay? We're trying to go back in the time of Job or in the time of Abraham or whatever and say, what did the original audience, what would they have understood from the text? We're, we're respecting the historical nature of it. And then finally, grammatical just means we're going to look uh, at the grammar, at the language, at the context, the paragraphs, at the whole book, and we're going to try and interpret the meaning in its context according to the grammar and syntax and things like that, okay? Uh, end of boring her- hermeneutic uh, lecture there. Why is that important again? When we see things in Scripture that we go, I don't know, 
we start seeing things like this. Well, maybe it's a figure of speech. Maybe it's some metaphor. You see this, uh, I mentioned creationism, you, you see this in some of the um, early chapters of Genesis where, where commentators that don't really believe um, in the inspiration of Scripture, they're trying to explain away the clear teachings of the Bible and origins to try to make it fit a scientific theory. Um, now, does the Bible have figurative language in it? Oh yeah, sure it does. Does it have metaphor? Absolutely. Okay. So, so we're not saying those things aren't there and we're, we're taking some wooden literal approach. What we're saying is we're not going to take something in the Bible that is meant in a normal, plain way. We're not going to try to explain it away because we don't like it using figurative language. That's what we're saying. Okay. So with those things in mind, let's, um, let, let's look at this. Okay. Um, there are some problems with these traditional views. Okay, now certainly a lot of the description of behemoth would fit a hippopotamus. A lot of the descriptions there of leviathan would fit a crocodile. Uh, by the way, most commentators think that's a Nile crocodile. Never smile at a Nile crocodile. Is that how it goes? Um, but there, there are some problems here. Okay, um, and I would direct your attention back to verse 17. He bends his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are like bars of iron. Um, the, the cedar here is interesting. Usually when the cedars are mentioned in Scripture, as it is here, there, there's a reference to a very specific kind. It's the cedars of Lebanon, and you've probably heard that in Scripture. Um, let me show you one. That's a cedar. We think we have cedars out here? That's a cedar. Lebanon cedars grow to be up to 130 feet tall and 8 feet in diameter. Okay? Now, you can even see it here. Those are people. Big tree, people. Okay? Here's another one you can see a little bit better. Okay, there's people. Big tree. Okay? Cedars of Lebanon. Okay, Now, God is comparing the tail of this creature to a cedar. Okay, And it is a comparison, right? It, it, it's figurative in that sense. You know, the tail is like a cedar tree. Now, here's the problem. Oh, oh wait. Um, this is um, what's called, uh, what was it called? The, the, I think it's the, called the Lebanon tree sculpture. It's someone who actually sculpted some of the... Um, uh, trunks of some of the trees. You get an idea how big these things are, right? Okay. Um, yeah, there's the problem. Okay. You see the problem? Um, do you think cedar when you see that picture? Do you think, wow, big tree, when you see that tail? Okay. Now, now this, this if we had hippopotami, do you say, what's the plural of hippopotamus? Is it hippopotami? Okay. If we had hippopotami in the room, we would not show this for fear of offending some, but I will show you this one. Okay. Um, it's just not a cedar. Okay. Not a tree. And uh, not a very flattering picture, Mr. Hippopotamus, there, so we'll move on. Okay. Do you see the problem? The problem is a hippopotamus, of all creatures, 
does not have a tree comparable to a cedar. Okay, what did I say, a tree? And I speak for a living, that's crazy. Yes, a tail comparable to a cedar. Okay. Here's another problem. Look at the description of Leviathan here. Out of his mouth go burning torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils smoke goes forth as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals and a flame goes forth from his mouth. Now, be honest with me for a minute. You read that and you think you're reading some children's fairy tale novel about some fire-breathing dragon. And I think that sort of initial reaction of us modern people is maybe a little bit why some commentators end up here. Okay. Um, what's the problem with that? You ever seen uh, one of those? Fire coming out of his mouth there? Okay. Um, yeah. So, so, so what's going on here? What are these creatures? The answer is we don't know. That's exactly right. We, we don't know. But if we're committed to the inspiration of Scripture and to, to sound hermeneutics, we have to understand these in their plain sense. There was a creature that and I suppose in some way was massive and large like a hippopotamus but had a tail comparable to a cedar tree. And there was a creature similar to a crocodile that if we're understanding this correctly had a capability of spewing forth fire. Okay. Does that make you uncomfortable? Um, it's interesting. I mentioned my mom's in town this week, and so we've been doing lots of field trips. Um, and just the way God puts things together, I walked into a room. We went to the, uh, the the Children's Science Museum up in Fort Worth. You guys been there before? Went there last week. And uh, walked in, and I saw a creature that had a tail comparable to a cedar. It's called a Paluxiosaurus. I didn't know there was such a thing. I've been lived here for 10 years. Paluxiosaurus. You know what a Paluxiosaurus is? What's a Paluxiosaurus? That's right. That's right. I'll show you. Yeah, I was having fun there. Um, the Paluxiosaurus isn't on here, but it would be comparable to this one right here. Okay. And you can see... Elephant. By the way, elephant was an honorable mention for the original interpretation. Hippopotamus was number one. Elephant was honorable mention number two. Elephant doesn't qualify very well there, but we see some creatures that have tails comparable to dinosaurs. And I walked into the room and I saw this. I don't. Does anybody know that the, the skeleton they have up there is that actually what they found in Paluxy in the 1960s or whenever it was? Does anybody know? Well, yeah, I assume. But but is it is it a copy of it? And the family that you guys, you guys know the history of this? I didn't know any of the history of this. Um, there's a ranch out there. Uh, the, the guys that, that discovered these and, and um, the property owners where they came out and did the excavation, their last name is Jones. Okay. And I guess the trend today is to start to name creatures, to try to name them after the, the people that find them. So that's why you have a Paluxiosaurus, right? Because it was found in the Paluxy River Valley. And then. <laughs> 
It's actually called a Paloxiosaurus Jones's eye. Which is what you get when you try to name, try to take a name like Jones and Latinize it to make it sound like some scientific name. I just thought that was the funniest thing. I sit there laughing at the display. But but hey, you remember Mr. Jones found it, right? I guess that's the point. Okay. Now you know, there's a third thing here. I didn't mention this. There's a third thing here. How's our time? Ooh, we gotta go. There's a third thing here. You have to really hold to a biblical view of creation. You know why? I read some old earth creationists who get to this point and they go, up, can't have dinosaurs and people together. Can't do that. And one old earth creationist I actually read said, well, probably what God is talking about is a dinosaur, but it was a dinosaur that died a long time before people came on the earth. I'm like, what? Where do you get that? And it's just because they hold to an old earth theory of creation. Right, right. Yeah. So, I mean, here's some, and again, we, we don't know. Okay, I'm not saying this is, this is definitely a dinosaur, but I'm saying it sure sounds like it. It sure sounds like it. What about the sea creature? You know, and again, you get into mythology and, and, and uh, all that sort of thing. But, but remember, guys, this, this, is, this is God's word. This is God telling us there are two creatures. Okay? There are two creatures that are described this way. And, um, you know, I, I wouldn't get uncomfortable with the whole fire-breathing thing. You guys ever, ever seen a firefly? Bioluminescence. Some amazing, really cool things happen when God can make a creature with some chemicals that come together and all of a sudden you've got light. The bombardier beetle, I, I, he's going to get cut from my notes here. But uh, you guys don't understand how that, how that beetle works? When it's disturbed, the beetle ejects a noxious chemical spray in rapid burst of pulses from special glands in its abdomen. Um, in the back of this beetle, this is amazing, listen to this. In the back of this beetle... It has two chambers, one filled with hydroquinone, am I saying that right? And hydrogen peroxide in two separate reservoirs. And when it's threatened, the beetle contracts its muscles. It forces the two reactants through a valve together into a mixing chamber containing water and a mixture of catalytic enzymes. And when combined, the reactants undergo a violent exothermic chemical reaction. Listen to this. Raising the temperature to, a ne- to near the boiling point of water. The corresponding pressure buildup forces, uh, forces the entrance valves from the reacting storage chambers to close, thus protecting the beetle's internal organs and saving Mr. Beeble from frying himself. The boiling, foul-smelling liquid partially becomes a gas, what's called flash evaporation, and is expelled through an outlet valve into the atmosphere with a loud popping sound. The flow of reactants into the reaction chamber and subsequent ejection to the atmosphere occurs cyclically at a rate of 500 times per second. Now, if God can design a creature that can do that, do you think he can make a sea creature that can put forth fire? 
Yeah, I, that's, why, that's what I'm saying. You know, we, we, we read this and we forget who our God is. Well, first of all, he can do whatever he wants, right? I mean, that's part of the point of the book. He does whatever he pleases. But we have creatures that are, what, what about electric eels? 600 volts up to one amp. That's like three or four times as much current as you need to kill somebody. And he can do that. Because he's got little battery plates. I was reading about them. The little eels have little battery plates inside of them. They work just like batteries. Just stack them all up. You know, you put eight double A's in. Well, he's got about 5,000 of these little plates. I'm serious. And just like a battery that stores energy in a chemical way, he's got little battery compartments in there. And, and when he, something goes to attack him, 600 volts, like that. Okay. Now, all that to say, let's not miss the point of this. The point is not to get sidetracked into all this sort of thing. The, the point is God is trying to make a very, very significant point here to Job, okay? What is it? Verse 19. He, the Leviathan, is the first of the ways of God. First meaning the preeminent, the, the, um, the, the grandest, the greatest, the most powerful, if you will. Let his maker bring near his sword. What's that saying? You think God flinches to walk up to this creature? Absolutely not. Can anyone capture him when he was on watch with barbs? Can anyone pierce his nose? Obviously the answer is no, but God can walk up to him with a sword anytime God wants to, and he doesn't flinch in the face of this creature. Chapter 41, verse 10, no one is so fierce. Now listen to this. This is about, this is about um, Leviathan now, okay? No one is so fierce that he dares to arouse him, Okay? No one is so fierce that he dares to arouse this amazing sea creature. Conclusion. Okay, listen. Conclusion. So who then is he that can stand before me, God says. If God says, if I can make this creature that nobody approaches, I can make this creature that nobody can hook, nobody can go near, nobody can kill, and I can just walk up to him with a sword anytime I want to. I can just... I can do that. God says, then who on earth is there that can stand before me and accuse me, the idea? Who has given to me that I should repay? Here, here's, here's the underlining part of the verse here. Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. God says, I made that. Okay. Now those are two proof texts. That's exhibit A and exhibit B to demonstrate God's point to Job that what? You are not God. Okay. I think that's, that's what he's trying to say there. All right. Well, we're out of time. Let's uh, put a comment on our notes. We'll come back next week.